Welcome to Veritas, the truth behind Asian Americans and affirmative action. I'm DJ Boacha, and today I'm here with... Karina, hi. You'll also hear me on episodes about the personal rating and underrepresented Asian American perspectives. Yep, and today's episode is called Edward Bloom, the man, the model minority myth, the legend. Why did you get interested in him? I think looking at Bloom provides a micro approach to a much broader conversation about how anti-affirmative action proponents might be thinking. I just don't think that it's fair to automatically write them off as racist because nowadays, people are really doing their best to not get labeled that way. I think something a little bit more complex is going on than simply racial hate. I can understand why. Being labeled a racist has huge ramifications for your life, especially in this age of social media. True. Very true. I think it has made people shift away from explicit racism towards something way more subtle that I think requires a little bit more digging to best understand. Well, let's see what you've discovered. For sure. I can say that I've learned a lot about Edward Bloom, that's for one. Now, as you can probably guess, this episode is entirely about him, the man behind some of the most prolific affirmative action cases in recent years. He is middle-class white and Jewish, a self-described everyman who has no formal education in law, who is fixated on eradicating race as a factor in any and all public policy. Wait, he isn't a lawyer? Nope, there are no law degrees at work with him. So what is he? A litigator. I'm confused. Understandable. Before I delve into his story, I just want to clarify that this isn't an autobiographical episode about Edward Bloom. Or at least it isn't entirely. My main intention is to delve into the frames that Edward Bloom might be evoking to justify his one-man crusade against race-based policy. Frames? I first heard about frames, or frameworks, when I was reading The Diversity Bargain by Natasha Wairaku. She described frames as lenses. Yeah, lenses through which we observe, interpret, and respond to social phenomena. So, frames are ways of thinking. Yes, exactly! I want to break down what are the possible ways that Bloom is thinking that might lead him to be pushing the cases he is. Throughout all the cases he's pushed to the Supreme Court, Bloom can be consistently seen trying to nullify or change any policy that seems to provide special treatment or bring about special attention to racial groups or minorities. You said he wasn't a lawyer, though. Before I get into his job status, let me give Edward Bloom a chance to tell us what he thinks his mission is. I want to just start out by telling you how it is I got in the uh, sort of sordid business of of, uh, kind of undivvying us up by race. And that particular phrase, some of you may recognize from Chief Justice uh, John Roberts in a a case that was decided a few years ago and uh, uh, that advanced the ball in uh, uh, ending race-based preferences in K through 12. He said, this is a sordid business uh, divvying us up by race. And indeed, it is a sordid He is here to continue a trend that he is already seeing in the United States of America. Uh, it seems to me that the court uh, wants America uh, and our legislative bodies uh, to get out of the classification business. Uh, they, they, want, um, they want our institutions of higher education, our government, uh, to stop classifying people and treating them differently, whether it comes to race, ethnicity, or, or their, their sexual inclinations. 
And I think that that's a trend that we've seen develop over the last 10 or 15 years, and I suspect it's going to be a trend that we see continue as long as we have this court. You might be wondering, okay, so that's his mission, but what about his job? Well, Edward Bloom is a litigator. A litigator is a matchmaker of sorts. He pairs up plaintiffs, which are the people or group who are accusing someone of wrongdoing, to attorneys who are willing to help the plaintiff take that case to court. He gets paid to do this? Well, yes. To an extent, he's a one-man operation, but he's a one-man operation that's the muscle of the larger network of conservative groups, such as Donors Trust. Donors Trust is an organization that takes donations from people who are interested in conservative and slash or libertarian organizations. The donations given create a pool of funds that are then distributed to various conservative and libertarian causes and groups. Donors Trust paid the attorneys in Bloom's previous cases, such as Fisher v. University of Texas. A majority of the money that Donors Trust gives to Bloom and students for fair representation come from the same single foundation called Zero Freedom Trust, whose mission is to support work that will lead to a more just, free, and prosperous society. Well, how much are they donating? Oh boy, <laughs> we are talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. Bloom received almost $600,000 between the years of 2005 and 2010, 650000 in 2013, and 500000 in 2015 from Cyril to fund Project for Fair Representation, Student for Fair Representation's parent organization. Who runs Project for Fair Representation? You said that it was a one-man operation. Is Project for Fair Representation really just Edward Bloom? To respond to that, I'll just say that the number given out for potential plaintiffs to call Project for Fair Representation is actually Edward Bloom's own personal number, and I hope that that'll give you the answer that you're looking for. Wait, if the money isn't going directly to Bloom, how is he being paid? He has a consulting business analyzing the finances of a handful of wealthy families. He also received modest honorariums or payments for his work as a litigator. So he's a consultant, but just does law on the side? Yeah. I think this might be a good time to go back and start from the beginning with Bloom's history. Just a quick overview. Edward Bloom was born to a white-collar Jewish family in Benton Harbor, Michigan. He didn't stay in Michigan, though, and has lived in Florida, Texas, and Maine in his 60-plus years of life. He graduated from the University of Austin in 1973, then spent a year studying African literature at the State University of New York. African literature? Yeah. He said he found it intellectually stimulating. He returned to the South in the early 80s to be a broker in Houston, Texas, and became involved with the neoconservatism movement down there. That isn't really surprising, considering what he does now. I wouldn't say that. He did grow up with liberal left-wing parents. He called himself a college liberal, to use his own words, and identified as a Democrat at points. He did? He said that he started reading neoconservative magazines and changed his views after college. By 1984, he was voting for Ronald Reagan. His views took him into actually entering in a congressional race against Craig Anthony Washington, an African-American man popular in the area in a primarily black district. Did he win? No, he didn't. He actually lost to Washington by a significant margin, but that loss proved to be, as Bloom calls it, the acorn that started his agenda to end race-based policies in the United States. Well, that's one way to bounce back from a loss. 
That is true. He suspected that the district that he had been running in was gerrymandering in order to create a minority-majority district. He filed a lawsuit against the state of Texas, and when the case made it to the Supreme Court, the court voted in his favor, and that was the beginning of Edward Bloom's work with the law. But why would he do that? I'm so glad that you asked that because I feel like that would be a great way to segue into the meat of this episode, Edward Bloom's frameworks. Now, you just asked why, and I think what he did and what he's doing very much has to do with how he views the world and how the law must change to catch up with society. To put all his frameworks together concisely, I believe that Edward Bloom thinks that the United States is post-racial and that explicit racism is dead. In his world, we no longer need race-based policies because race doesn't matter. How do you know that? Here, let me read you some things that he said. Edward Bloom was once quoted saying that race-based policies violate the very principles of equality they were created to uphold. What does it seem like he's saying there? He makes it sound like race-based policies are unfair. Aren't they? DJ, what are you talking about? Well, 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 well. Just think about it. Race-based policies adjust how people are treated in order to create equal outcomes. Bloom wants equal treatment, and because he believes that we've moved past race, if race is no longer relevant in people's life trajectories, he thinks that equal treatment is all we need to get equal outcomes. Okay, so you said that you think Edward Bloom believes we're post-racial. What other frameworks do you think he has in mind? I think there are four big ones that kind of go hand in hand. Don't worry, I'll break them down in a second, but let me just say them first. So, we have explicit racism is dead. And this is very deeply interwoven with the second framework, formal discrimination is over. So formal discrimination like Jim Crow? Mm-hmm. There are no hard laws that say that white people and people of color should be kept separate. There are no laws that say that people of color can't go here or there or do this or that, at least not explicitly. And anyone that would suggest bringing those kinds of laws back at this point would probably be called a racist because of their overt display of racist ideology. Okay, that makes sense. It's less socially acceptable to be a blatant racist. Yes, the thing is that there are people who believe that once formal Jim Crow-like laws are abolished and blatant displays of racism are no longer socially acceptable, racism is done away with. Who needs race-based policies to fix racism if racism is no longer a problem? Bloom was quoted thinking that society's growing embrace of diversity has made these old protections, he's referring to race-based policies, obsolete, and was also said to have said that you can't go to a small dinner party in most of America today and tell an off-color joke and not be ostracized. He seems to hold this as evidence that explicit racism and former discrimination are dead concepts which inform his belief that American society is post-racial. I mean, that's what you would say Edward Bloom believes, but is there any actual proof that things are better in the United States? Well, there has been research done into what biases people have out there. In the psychology department at Harvard University, Tessa Charlesworth and Mazarin Banaji created a test called the Implicit Association Test on their Project Implicit website. It's a useful tool for measuring people's conscious and unconscious biases. They discovered that all explicit attitudes reveal change toward neutrality. They also concluded that this change indicates that conscious and self-reported prejudice has decreased across time. However, the results pertaining to unconscious bias regarding race had also been declining, but at a far slower rate than conscious attitudes. 
This would mean that there is a conflict within people where underlying prejudices still exist, even if people believe and emphasize their open-mindedness and liberal views. Whoa, okay. So you've said three frameworks that you think Bloom is working from so far. First, formal discrimination is over with. Second, explicit racism is dead. And third, America is post-racial. Yes, to put simply, racism is now illegal, therefore racial identity shouldn't be relevant. How is this relevant to academics, though? What does this have to do with the actions in terms of Harvard's case or even the Fisher case? I didn't realize that he had sued his own alma mater, UT Austin, in the Fisher case. The irony. But you asked how this is related to academics. Well, I think that within that, you have to think about what makes someone a qualified applicant in Edward Bloom's eyes, a person who believes in America's meritocracy. Qualified? Yes, qualified. Someone with merit. Merit in the United States is an evolving term. Its definition morphs itself to suit the needs of those in power, of those with money, of those with social capital, the elite. The system built around the ever-changing definition of merit, America's meritocracy, is but a disguise to exacerbate socioeconomic inequality in the United States. It is an elite-driven means to feed those that already resemble the elite to the elite. It is a system that has been legitimized in the eyes of the public through the disguise of being based on merit. For the system to work, though, the elite would have to get the consent of the non-elites to systematically put them at a disadvantage. In order for this to be done, the elite have to present the meritocracy in such a manner that the non-elites do not feel themselves to be deprived of an opportunity to achieve socioeconomic mobility. Well, yes, people in the United States love the idea of a meritocracy, which is defined by Dictionary.com as an elite group of people whose progress is based on ability and talent rather than on class privilege or wealth. But the belief is flawed because it relies on the idea that people start on equal footing. That seems to be a running theme with Blue. What do you mean? I mean, he seems to think that all barriers to success are gone, and we're all at the same starting line. I can see how you'd say that. The problem with the meritocracy is that it obscures and even justifies institutional social hierarchies. But how does it do that? Think about what helps increase one's chances of getting into an elite institution. The education system is rigged in favor of the wealthy. Think about Operation Varsity Blue, the $25 million scam by celebrities to bribe and cheat their children into top universities. People love the idea of a meritocracy in the United States because it falls in line with American myths and ideals so easily. Myths? Like the American dream? Exactly, like the American dream. The land of equal opportunity, the place where you can work hard and achieve, the place where all people can pull themselves up by their bootstraps and succeed. But there's a difference in experience for people who have generational wealth and legacy status and those who are first generation and have to work while studying. The culture of individualism alive in the United States means that people are constantly seeking to differentiate themselves from and above others. Is the gap that large? Well, through court documents, it was revealed that from 2010 to 2015, Harvard's admission rate for legacies was 34%, while non-legacies had an admission rate of 6%. Legacy status is something that overwhelmingly benefits white privileged students. In fact, the total number of white legacies at Harvard is larger than all the legacies of color combined. Whoa, that's huge. But what does this have to do with Bloom? It illuminates the danger of what he's doing because it shows that the bedrock, the fundamental idea that he's acting with in mind, is flawed. 
He wants equal treatment by getting rid of race from admissions. He was even quoted saying, affirmative action treats whites unfairly and stigmatizes minorities. In college admissions, Edward Bloom had equated colorblindness with equality. I don't even know where to start asking for elaboration here. Okay, he said affirmative action stigmatizes minorities. Do you think that claim has any weight to it? To an extent, he's not entirely wrong. There does exist the idea that racial classification can have a stigmatizing effect on the people of color who are supposed to be beneficiaries of such policies. Like imposter syndrome? Like when you doubt your own accomplishments and merit? Exactly. You said colorblindness, right? Would you consider that another frame Edward Bloom has? I would say so, especially if you listen to how Natasha Barracu defines it. Would you like to read that? I can read it. The colorblindness frame suggests that today, race has little social meaning. Owing to equal rights legislation, the end of legal segregation, the decline of overtly racist attitudes, and the overall growing prosperity for many Black Americans. That sounds to me like a combination of all of the previous things you've said about Bloom. That's because it is. Read a few more lines for me, would you? Okay, sure. Overall, the colorblindness frame resonates with broader movements in the United States to ignore the role that race plays in society, despite considerable evidence to the contrary seen in, to cite a few of numerous examples, racial disparities in areas of education from school discipline to where students attend college. Wow, that's heavy. I wanted you to read that because I want to make it really stark how dangerous colorblindness in college admissions would be. Bloom and his organization, Students for Fair Admissions, claim that a colorblind admissions process is more equitable, that any consideration of race, regardless of the circumstances, is in and of itself discrimination. He was even quoted saying, most Americans don't want race to be part of your application to college. He said, they don't want the police to use race as a profiling tool to prevent crime. They don't want prosecutors to use race in the makeup of a jury. Your race and your ethnicity should not be something used to help or harm you in your life endeavors. There's a line of logic there that seems really easy to follow. You don't want race involved in this realm or that realm, so it only makes sense that you don't want it involved in this realm either. That's what's so insidious about it. It slips right under the radar because it doesn't ring any alarms right off the bat. But the fact is that the United States still grapples with racial inequality. Colorblindness ignores race when and where it shouldn't be ignored. Colorblindness and the eradication of race as a factor in anything in the United States is so fundamental to Bloom's ideologies and frameworks that the motif of race's danger crops up in his speeches all the time. Here are some quotes from him. Race. It is harmful to the social fabric of a college campus, and it becomes harmful to the social fabric of a nation. And race has no place in life or law. Even those close to him say that he has a vision of society where race doesn't matter, where the government treats us all the same regardless of skin color. If you want to hear this out of Bloom's own mouth, listen to these sound bites from interviews and speeches he has given. A student can change her grades, her standardized test scores, AP classes, and out-of-school activities, but she cannot change her race and ethnicity. Those are immutable cosmetic characteristics, immutable cosmetic characteristics. 
Every one of us is a unique individual and must be judged as such. So let me be clear. The mission of Students for Fair Admissions is to end racial classifications and preferences in college admissions. Well, uh, quotas are uh, anathema to our civil rights laws. Racial balancing is anathema to our civil rights laws. He's really after a powerful ideal there, where race is just a non-factor. Isn't that what everyone wants to an extent? A place where ethnic and racial difference is appreciated, but not fetishized or tokenized or pointed at to marginalize. Within that is where Edward Bloom gets his power. The ideal he is chasing after is something people can sympathize with, or even with some tweaks support. It is something that people can easily see the logic of. It is a lion in sheep's clothing. So, do you think Edward Bloom is a racist? No. I think people who attack that label on him are losing out on the different nuances shown in his rhetoric and actions. I feel like to give him that label would allow people to easily dismiss him as someone who hates people of color, and I don't think that's what's going on here. Edward Bloom is not doing what he's doing out of a vendetta or hatred of minority groups, but what he is doing is helping maintain a system that does harm these individuals. Wow, thank you for walking me through your interpretation of Edward Bloom's mind. No, thank you for listening. I just hope you walk away from this not dismissing him as a one-dimensional white man. There's a lot more going on here. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, you've been listening to Veritas, the truth behind Asian Americans in affirmative action. Hi, this is Professor Franklin Odo. These podcasts are products of a research colloquium that I taught in the American Studies Department of Amherst College. We are grateful for support from Associate Dean Austin Surratt and from Catherine Epstein, Provost and Dean of the Faculty at Amherst College.